The Guardian. Hello, I'm Michael White and welcome to this live debate in association with the online campaign 38 Degrees between the men at the heart of their party's election manifestos. Over the next hour you'll be able to question Labour's Ed Miliband, who's in a studio in Gateshead, Jeremy Hunt from the Conservatives, who's here in our studio at Guardian HQ in London, and Danny Alexander of the Liberal Democrats up in his constituency uh, near Inverness in the north of Scotland. And also joining me in the studio is Hannah Lounsborough of 38 Degrees, which, you probably knew this, is the angle at which avalanches start in the British Isles. Think about that. Hannah, tell us a bit more about your organisation and what's in store for us today. We're a people-powered campaigning organisation. We've got 125,000 members now. Um, and over the last few days, we've been asking our members and Guardian readers to suggest the questions that people should be answering today and also to vote on which questions they think are the most important. So the questions we're hearing today are the most popular as a result of our poll. Excellent, excellent. Now, uh, uh, suspense over. Uh, The most voted issue... as described by Hannah, is the Robin Hood tax, sometimes called the Tobin tax after the economist James Tobin, I think, who invented it. According to its supporters, this would raise billions of pounds uh, from levying a tiny financial transaction uh, on uh, the activities of investment banks, hedge funds, etc., dampen down uh, economically pointless uh, activity. Uh, On the line is Anna from uh, London, who's going to explain. Hello. Hello, Anna. Fire away. Sure. Um, I'm speaking on behalf of more than 150,000 people who support the Robin Hood tax. Why has this tax been overlooked in proposed budgets when it could raise up to £250 billion within a year? And if your party does have a proposed bank tax, will the money be spent on social causes as the Robin Hood tax suggests, both in the UK and abroad? Right, I shall start with the minister there. It's a tricky one. Ed Miliband. Well, we're interested in this idea of a Tobin or, or global uh, global tax uh, on transactions that Anna described, but we need international agreement. Now, at the moment, it looks like we're going to get international agreement. We hope we'll get international agreement to an international uh, banking levy. Uh, we think that will be a good thing to do. It, it uh, raises revenue uh, from the banks. Uh, obviously, we know what's happened with the banks in the last uh, couple of years, and we know what was, what was going on uh, before that. As to the question about how that money would be spent. We are determined to ensure that we meet the 0.7% GDP commitment for overseas aid. So that's the very important commitment. And actually, overseas aid spending has been going up and we've committed to meet it by, I think, 2012-13. We're also committed to ensuring that money for climate change, for tackling international climate change, adapting to climate change, which I know is a big issue for the campaign, that there is additional money after 2012-13 for that purpose as well. We've said that no more than 10% of existing aid money should be used uh, for for these international climate change purposes so that the money doesn't get diverted. So uh, I think we we do want to see an international uh, tax. We think that actually where it's heading is towards a a, a levy uh, on the banking uh, sector um, and there is growing support for that Uh, and we also want to make sure that we meet uh, important commitments on overseas development and on okay. uh, climate change. Th- thank you, got you. Uh, um, uh, Danny Alexander, you've got much to quarrel with, with that. It's shorter, shorter answers are better, by the way. That's the one we approve of. Well, the short answer to, to Anna's question is yes, we support the idea of a financial transactions tax. Uh, it would have to be 
developed on an international basis so that uh, we could work with other countries to ensure that that source of development financing was available. There are other things we could look at too, such as uh, a cap-and-trade system for carbon emissions from aviation and shipping, which would again uh, help in that front. But I think where uh, I disagree with Ed is on this issue of the bank tax. I think that uh, our view certainly is that we should, in the UK, be uh, introducing a new levy on bank profits straight away. We don't need to wait for other countries. We can get on with and do that ourselves. Uh, we've suggested a 10% levy on the on the profits of banks as a, uh, a payment for the guarantee that they receive from uh, every taxpayer. And th- that's what we are putting forward at this election. We'd do that uh, as soon as we could straight away if a Liberal Democrat government was elected. Jeremy Hunt, uh, you've made a payroll. You've been a businessman. Um, 10% uh, uh, levy, uh, uh, Danny Alexander suggested there, on uh, bank profits right away unilateral British action, don't wait for international action? Yes, I think the concern with what um, Danny and the Liberal Democrats is proposing is that the City of London, um, for all it's been reviled, is actually uh, responsible for a huge proportion of our tax base. I think a quarter of all corporation tax profits uh, come from the city, and that's obviously incredibly important for the National Health Service, for for funding the welfare state. And um, the concern is that if the Lib Dems went ahead with a a proposal like that, we'd just see our banks moving offshore. Um, But actually, we're not sure about that idea. However, um, Anna's uh, original question was about the Tobin tax, the Robin Hood tax, and we actually do think that the UK should move ahead. Um, unlike Labour, we think that the UK should move ahead unilaterally if necessary, because um, this is something that America has already accepted the case for. It's something that Sweden is in the process of accepting. And, and there is a time when you can show leadership on something like this. And if the two biggest financial centres in the world, London and New York, are going ahead with this kind of transactions tax, uh, then we think um, it's something that you could create a, a global movement for change. And so um, we do support the principle. Um, final comment, um, we wouldn't need to put it into preserving the 0.7% going into international development because we support that anyway. We've said that along with the National Health Service is something that we would do anyway. Thank you. Uh, Anna, listening to that, encouraged, discouraged? Um, I think that there should have been a much better response to the Robin Hood tax. It promises so much money, and it's something that we could really lead lead everyone on. They were quite we positive about it, though, weren't they? Yeah, positive, but just not positive enough, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, Hannah? Uh, with an H. Uh, how are we doing on the tweets? Any yet? Yeah, we're seeing a few things come in. Um, there's definitely people who are interested in in hearing more about who the who the parties are going to follow in terms of their economics policy. Um, there are lots of people who are also interested in hearing what the parties have got to say on the question of climate change um, and also some people with, with questions about how we're going to regulate lobbying um, Well, we future. might come back to that and we might come back to bank regulating if we have more time, which means short answers. Uh, next question is about uh, uh, climate change. That was the most second most popular topic. And we have uh, Robert, who I think is in Wimborne in Dorset, uh, on the line to pop his question. Hello. Yes, from Dorset, it feels a bit like the election campaign being a, a beauty contest between leaders. And so to bring it a bit more down to earth, I'd like to ask if your party forms the next government what action would you take to tackle climate change? Jeremy Hunt, I'm going to go to you first. Well, um, 
this is an area where all three parties agree about the ends, um, but uh, none of us have been particularly specific about the means of how we're going to get there. And I think that's something that uh, we need to put right uh, as much as possible. And we've said that specifically the things that you need to do to tackle climate change is, number one, you need a high-speed rail network because we have got to... Um, do something once and for all to move away from this idea that um, as people become increasingly mobile, the main way to do this is through the car. And so we have outlined some plans for a high-speed rail network, which, which, I mean, I lived in Japan for a couple of years, and high-speed rail has completely transformed the way things work in Japan. But they're so much more respectful in Japan, aren't they, Joe? They, they're, they're it's a brilliant train. It's a brilliant train. But, but the thing is about Japan is it's actually a much, even more densely crowded island than England. A lot of people say England is so densely crowded, but actually Japan is even more so. And, um, and it works incredibly well. And in fact, high-speed rail works better the more densely crowded somewhere is because okay. there's more remarkable. Okay. So that's number one. I just say one other thing. Um, I think we've got to accept this isn't just something for government. It is all also for individuals and we need people in their own homes to do everything they can to improve and reduce energy use and so we've come up with a scheme which would allow people to finance the cost of um, insulation through reduced bills uh, later on uh, when their reduced bills start coming through so I think it's something that government has to set an example but actually we all have to do something about Right. Ed Miliband, as well as being the author of the Labour Manifesto, which is praised by David Hare and the Guardian for its literacy, uh, is the climate change minister. So I'm going to bring him in last. Uh, Danny Alexander, what's uh, your contribution to this proposition? Well, we've set out a, a, a wide range of ideas for tackling climate change. There are 62 different policies on the green front in our manifesto. In the interest of short answers, I don't intend to go through them all. But uh, but I was pleased that uh, the green groups recognised that, that our manifesto had the greenest uh, credentials of any of the, 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 the main parties. I just mentioned two things. Uh, firstly, this morning, uh, Nick Clegg was uh, launching our plans to have a green jobs boost right at the beginning of the parliament over the course of the next year. Uh, if a Liberal government is formed, we'd take some of the savings that we would make and use them to, to fund uh, things like uh, an eco-cashback scheme, giving people money back if they uh, install micro-generation, uh, uh, helping to transform uh, ports and harbours so that we can actually manufacture renewable energy equipment such as offshore wind turbines uh, uh, in the UK, support for schools to uh, improve the energy efficiency of their buildings. And then in the in the sort of medium term, uh, I think that one of the things that's important is uh, to ensure that we have the money available to invest in uh, infrastructure. And our proposals for a UK infrastructure bank would ensure that even in tough economic times, we could uh, invest in our rail network, for example, which is vitally important, not just high-speed rail, but also local rail improvements so that people have a real choice uh, to get out of their cars and use the train to get to work or, or to commute. Uh, Minister, they all sounded, both of them, uh, admirable suggestions, but very localised about what we can do here in Britain. But climate change by its nature must have the big picture as well, mustn't it? I agree um, that, that we need both domestic and international action. On, on the domestic front, we think that the most important thing is to drive forward with the low-carbon technologies of the future. That's renewables, including onshore and offshore wind, nuclear, and carbon capture and storage, clean coal. Because if you can take the carbon out of your electricity system, then you are much, much more likely to make a speedy 
uh, uh, path or to take a speedy path to decarbonizing the rest of your uh, uh, economy because you've you've got electric cars which will uh, run on electricity obviously you've got electrification of trains we also need action in the household sector with incentives for people i think the difference between the parties if i may say so uh, on this michael is that in practice up and down the country conservative councils are opposing uh, onshore wind uh, the conservative party you mean nimbyism is, well you might characterize it that way um, conservative politicians like ken clark say we shouldn't have any onshore wind at all i think the problem is is that the conservative party talks a good game when it comes to green issues but if they were in power they wouldn't stand up to people to make the hard decisions that are necessary particularly on this issue of renewables where frankly they are very very ambivalent okay. jeremy hunt come back on that one quickly. well i completely disagree with that i mean obviously one of the things that Ed is not uh, not factoring in here is that most councils are conservative controlled and on the whole tend to be for very rural areas and i think you have to carry people with you on that but i would just say that if you would want to carry them with you would you would want to educate councils absolutely i mean i think uh, david cameron deserves huge recognition for if you like a nixon going to china moment on green issues i this mean when huskies uh, when the conservative party which is traditionally the party of business um is prepared to say that um it thinks that green issues and the environmental agenda needs to be central to the policy agenda then that is the moment that the pendulum really has swung but, but jeremy words aren't enough that's the problem i agree so, yeah, so when so, why, so well, when your shadow business secretary says i don't think we should have any onshore wind turbines at all which is what he said what are people to think about the attitude of your party are they really to think that you've changed or are they to think that actually huskies make for a good photo opportunity well, there are climate skeptics in all parties there but what and i just so say ken is, if you're is a climate me, skeptic hang on so ken clark is a climate skeptic there are minister. plenty of people there are um labor peers um there's a lib dem peer who are on uh, nigel lawson's foundation and and this argument has to be won across the board but you're absolutely right ed to say that words aren't enough and i just say to you you have signed up to the goal of an 80% reduction by 2050, but you haven't actually said how we're going to get there. And I think that's the debate that needs to go forward. Very short answer there, Ed Miliband. Well, we have set it out, and actually emissions are about uh, 20% below where they were in 1990. But the problem is Jeremy Hunt can't can't deny the central point, which is that there are sceptics, as he calls them, in his own shadow cabinet, and there are sceptics up and down the country standing as Conservative candidates. There was a recent survey of about 200 Conservative candidates, and only a handful actually believe that climate change was real and man-made we've we've got the point there hannah the tweeters uh people are coming back with various different comments uh we've got people saying that the uk should move forward unilaterally on the robin hood tax uh we should lead the rest of the world in that um also pushing for greater global global leadership on on climate change seizing opportunities after the the relative failure of the copenhagen summit to to get some real deals happening internationally Okay, uh, uh, third most popular topic among uh, uh, 38 Degrees supporters was uh, voting reform. Uh, Rome Gardard in London is going to ask a question. Oh, hello. My, my name is Rome Godwin. Uh, um, and I'm uh, very happy to address the, the, the three representatives here. Yes. Um, because 10% of the, uh, of, the, um, of, of the votes on the 38 Degrees was on proportional representation. Um, and Labour said in 97 they would bring in political reform, but they didn't. Um, Mr. Brown has just re-raised the issue, and one wonders cynically why. Uh, the two big parties have always sneered at Lib Dems for wanting PR, but with a fifth of the vote, and they only get 62 yep, seats yep. last so, time instead of So where's the question, where's the question taking us? 
And why the Tories are against a form of PR, I don't know, because they also get um, less seats for, for their votes. So your question is? That we've got to we've got to make a, make the break now. Will, is it? Will the three make the break now? Will the three parties um, commit to a form of okay. PR? Okay. Thank you, uh, Danny Alexander. This is your subject, uh, if any is. Well, I can I can uh, exclusively announce that the Liberal Democrats are committed to a form of uh, proportional. Always have been. Uh, always have been. We think it's. Uh, it's, it's actually, I think it's one of the reasons why we have such big problems in our in our politics at the moment is that uh, there's peop- many people just wonder whether their vote will count at all when they come to cast it. Uh, I think if you look at the crisis we've seen in our political system over the past, uh, you know, uh, as exemplified by the expenses scandal over the past year or so, I think a, a big part of that is a kind of arrogance and complacency that exists at, at Westminster. Uh, and that is caused, I think, in, at least in part by the fact that there are hundreds of MPs on the Labour and Conservative bench who've effectively got safe seats for life or, or, or think they have. Are you suggesting um, that made them misbehave over expenses because they had safe seats? What, sh- I'm, what I'm suggesting is that it uh, creates an atmosphere of complacency and arrogance, uh, which I think lies behind a lot of the moves that uh, Labour and Conservative MPs made, for example, to try and exempt Parliament from, from the Freedom of Information Act, which was designed to try and prevent the information that quite readily has come out uh, getting out. Um, so I think we do need uh, uh, voting reform. We need a Parliament that reflects the views of the people and that's why we support the single transferable vote voting system we think that that would be the right way to ensure that uh, people's votes are reflected fairly in the composition of the parliament so, so, runs but, the country but gordon brown's you know you've got to get 50 percent. we've each got two votes that's not really a proportional system is it? it's not real electoral reform for people like you um, the the alternative vote is uh, a, a tiny step in the right direction, but only a tiny step. It doesn't uh, it doesn't deliver proportional results. It does uh, mean people have to get more than fifty percent in their own uh, constituencies. But look, Labour's as as the questioner said, uh, Labour has been promising electoral reform or saying it is since nineteen ninety seven. It hasn't delivered it. I see no reason to believe anything that they say on this issue. Well, if I remember rightly, and of course I'm old enough to remember, nineteen twenty nine, it was passed by the House of Commons by the minority Labour government and then defeated in the Lords. Ed Miliband will correct me. Minister, uh, the caller said deathbed cynical conversion by Gordon Brown with this vote on uh, a degree of electoral reform. Is that fair charge? No, I don't think so. I think we're taking the opportunity of the expenses uh, moment, if you like, and learning the right lessons from it, which is that you need you, you should have MPs more accountable to their constituents. So under an alternative vote system, you have to get more than 50% uh, of the vote. And we're offering people a referendum on that. And I think that is an important uh, reform, uh, frankly, to our uh, system. I think it is a very specific proposition that we are proposing putting to people. You might ask why this system and not another, because I think this is the system that best uh, combines people the need for people's votes to count, but also the constituency link. I think the constituency link in politics is very, very important. Uh, and I think having one member for one constituency is the right way way to actually have a relationship with your uh, constituents. And uh, and the, the alternative vote system combines both of those two things. And uh, I think the commitment to a referendum is very important. Jeremy Hunt, the polls are currently suggesting the voters really want a hung parliament. They don't want a strong majority government of the kind we've traditionally be, uh, preferred. Uh, now, what if that happens? How will, how will the Conservatives respond to the mood of the country if that's the way it goes? Well, I think that sums up exactly what the dangers are with the kind of proportional representation that the Liberal Democrats have been advocating for a very long time. I I mean, first of all, I think that it is extraordinary for 
Ed to uh, say that because of the expenses scandal, Labour has suddenly converted to voting reform because, I mean, Gordon Brown himself was the person who repeatedly blocked any moves towards voting reform when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, and I think it is a bit of a deathbed conversion, basically because he's realised that the one thing that's not going to happen at the next election is that Labour are going to win it. But let me just say this. I think people were incredibly angry in the expenses scandal, rightly so. But what they didn't say was that they wanted anything that would muddy the water that could potentially prevent them being able to fire or throw out a government that they didn't like. And I think that the right way to deal with that expenses scandal is to say, how do we approve, improve the accountability that members of parliament feel to the people who give them their jobs. And that means, for example, that people should be able to sack their MP. If they think that their MP has misbehaved, they shouldn't have to wait until a general election. They should be able to sack them, something the Conservatives have proposed. That means that we need to have much greater transparency, and that's something I think 38 Degrees has particularly championed, and um, David Cameron was the first person to make all members of his front bench put their expenses online. And then there's one other thing that I think would make a real difference in this, and that is much more genuine devolution of power. Because I think one of the reasons people feel frustrated with MPs is that we have such a centralised system that if you want something changed locally actually you have to go to your Westminster MP, and that's incredibly frustrating. We should have much more real power at a local level. Okay, now that's your kind of language. Hannah, what are the tweeters saying? Well, um, we've got a lot of people who are interested in, well, challenging really why it is that, that we haven't had the promises met on electoral reform. I think there are lots of people calling for a recall law, as we've heard. Uh, one of the big ideas that people think is quite important is that we're not stuck with MPs who've misbehaved until the next general election. Um, we also, there's also some scepticism. Is it that, um, is it the case that electoral reform promises just happen as a bit of an election gimmick? I think people are worried that that the parties aren't going to deliver if they're if they're successful at getting into okay. power. Okay, thank you. Well, now, I can assure you that it's no gimmick from the from the Liberal Democrats. And of course, you're right to say all parties are putting forward a recall law at this election. But when uh, we put forward the, this forward in the House of Lords last year, Labour voted against it, and the Tories sat on their hands. So I think that whether we can trust those two parties to actually deliver it is an entirely different question. Well, what worries me is who's going to decide whether people have, uh, have misbehaved because you get some pretty rough justice sometime. However, f Section 4, Digital Economy Bill, a lot of uh, uh, 38 Degrees supporters have been uh, fired up by two uh, media questions. One is the Digital Economy Bill, which went through in what they now call the wash-up rather quickly. A lot of people criticising it, saying it was been done at the behest of the uh, music industry, particular lobby, and will regret it. Second point is the future of the BBC. Hannah, uh, give us a bit of context. Okay, well, well, um, the question that uh, people were asking around the digital economy bill was really about fairness. So um, really, given that all of the three parties have a great deal to say about fairness, how do they how do they see the decision to push through the digital economy bill in a great rush towards the end of the end of this session of Parliament in a, what's called a wash up debate? How do they see that as fitting with fairness. I think our member Ross, who was um, hoping to come on the call today, said it isn't really that the opposite of fair. Okay. Jeremy Hunt, this is your special field, so go with it. 
Well, I thought it was an absolute disgrace. I mean, we could have debated this bill much earlier. We've actually had a very light parliamentary timetable for the last six months. And if the government had wanted to, they could have brought the digital economy bill forward much earlier. And in particular, what uh, was missing was the scrutiny of what's called a committee stage at the House of, in the House of Commons, where MPs, a smaller group of MPs, can go through the bill clause by clause. And I think the reason why people are so angry about this is because the Digital Economy Bill contains some um, very um, significant changes in how we deal with digital piracy. Um, this is where you strike people off, isn't it? Yes, this basically contains the rules that would block access to websites that promote illegal downloading and would also um, potentially uh, allow people who download too much music themselves to have their internet connection cut off. And there are questions about how serious it is, but uh, how um, you know whether it will be applied fairly. And I think it could have really done with that extra debate. And opposition parties were put in an invidious position because there are measures in that bill for for example, um, the reform of um, standards for classifying video games, something that's incredibly important for parents up and down the country, uh, the radio licensing, which would have had a, has a direct impact on the future of all the commercial radio stations in the country. So we were put in the, in the invidious position of striking down the whole bill, which would have done enormous damage to our creative industries, or letting it go through. And I, I think we both the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats on this one basically said that uh, we're going to let it go through, but we reserve our right to change it. You'll just say yes to that. Would you, Danny Alexander, up there in Scotland? Uh, no, I wouldn't. Um, I mean, the, the, the wash-up wasn't really a wash-up. It was a stitch-up. It was, uh, uh, as always in these situations, Labour and Conservative parties getting together to decide what legislation went through and what didn't. Uh, we pressed on, on the, the tiny amount of time that was allowed for the digital economy bill at that stage to strike out uh, the provisions on, uh, on 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 piracy and the ones that would have allowed people's internet connections to be cut off and that sort of thing because they simply hadn't been properly debated and they didn't get the balance right uh, between between protecting commercial interests and uh, and uh, and individual freedom. So we would want I, to um, we would want to repeal that if there was a Liberal Democrat government. I, I can't let I Danny get away with that. Well, I'm really sorry. No, 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 Danny. Let me just oh, say, you your peers in the Lords, the, the government doesn't have a majority in the Lords. And no in the wash-up, your peers could have blocked the digital economy bill becoming law, and you didn't. And that ver- the, the provisions on digital piracy that you say not, now, not the, that you now conser- say you're against... Not the Conservatives against, taking uh, No, the, the, the provisions on... You could have blocked it by... Yes, but you could have blocked it by talking... Can I just say, and the, the provisions on digital piracy were actually a Lib Dem amendment that was put forward by Tim Clement-Jones, one of your own peers. So the Lib Dems have taken completely contrary positions on this. They were, well, they, they were put forward by Tim Clement-Jones as an effort to improve a rotten bill. Um, it, it didn't improve it enough, and we were pushing for further changes. In, in the, in the okay, Commons. thank that's you. Why we'd, that's why we'd repeal those provisions. Ed Miliband, some of your MPs were unhappy about this bill too, weren't they? Th- this sounds like the old argy bargy that Nick Clegg doesn't like between uh, the Lib Dems and the Conservatives. Look, l- let's l- let's talk about the issue here. The issue is you've got uh, to balance the understandable importance that many people who use the internet uh, and are interested in internet issues attach to freedom. And the issue of how the music industry, the video industry, uh, the software industry, frankly, makes its money, but doesn't just make its money, funds the creativity that many people appreciate. And there is always a balance to be struck here. Now, what we've said is that there is a process which has been passed in the Digital Economy Bill of, for example, writing to people, uh, internet service providers will write to people if they're illegally downloading uh, things. 
any further action will require further secondary legislation. So there will be another chance to debate these issues, to consult on these okay. uh, issues. And it's also worth saying that you know, both parties that, that we've got on, the Lib Dems and the Troys, could easily have blocked this if they had wanted to. They decided they decided not to. But there are difficult issues here and the balance does need to be struck. OK, we'll have another bite of that cherry. Uh, very quickly, we're mo- moving on. The second issue which uh, uh, 38 Degrees supporters raised was Mark Thompson's plans, uh, BBC Director General's plans for the BBC. And I think I'm right in saying, Hannah, uh, the fate of stations like Six Music and the Asian Network. Is that right? Absolutely. In the proposed cuts to the website, we've had lots of people taking action on those issues. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, quick, uh, uh, quick answers uh, all, all the way, all the way down the uh, line. Jeremy Hunt first. I thought it was a curious decision. I didn't really understand the logic as to why they had singled out Six Music and the Asian Network for the chop, but then they were keeping other. Uh, popular niche services like Radio 3 or even the proms and so I didn't really understand the logic behind it but I do actually strongly support the principle of an arm's length relationship with the BBC uh, and I don't think politicians should be telling the BBC what services they should or shouldn't run so I wouldn't go as far as to actually tell them that they should do it differently but I thought it was a very odd decision. Danny Alexander, your constituents listen to Six Music or the Asian Network? I'm sure I'm sure some of them do and uh, you know the BBC is right like every organisation uh, to be looking at how it can uh, make savings and run itself uh, more ef- effectively given that it's spending public money through the through the licence fee but um, I think it needs to do that in the context of uh, its licence which talks about having programming which is distinctive, high quality and of good value and uh, certainly the representations I've received from Six Music listeners, I'm not one myself um, suggest that Six Music does produce things that meet those criteria, the savings wouldn't be great so I think it is uh, a bit of a strange decision myself. Uh, another of those difficult decisions uh, Ed Miliband uh, look, I'm not in favour of man- micromanaging what the BBC uh, does. They have to make their own decisions within a budget. I-, I do have to say to Jeremy Hunt, though, given that he said he will freeze the BBC licence fee immediately were a Tory government come to office, that he's going to scrap the BBC he's shaking trust, his head here. Uh, and, and what's more, that he himself has criticised the internet, um, uh, the nature of the BBC's internet service. I-, I think it's pretty rich for him to say he doesn't want to micromanage the BBC and he's somehow a great supporter of it. I think the Conservative Party does represent a threat to the BBC, frankly. Short answer there. Well, it's a lovely Labour scare story but if you actually look um, what we've said is that we support a strong BBC we also think that what makes British broadcasting great is strong competition to the BBC and the BBC website is something that uh, a lot of other people in the publishing industry are concerned well, about we better not, not, least we, at the Guardian, we better not talk about the BBC website here at the Guardian right we would admire the, the BBC Guardian website. has a jolly good website no, too I'm sure yes it does now Dilbar, Dilbar in Birmingham was the man who was uh, going to uh, uh, come in on this question you're still listening there Dilbar what do you think of the answers uh, not bad, but I don't think it gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, I'm a, a British Asian uh, licensed fee payer and an avid listener. And I'm one of the thousands who believe that the Asian Network and Six Music are benchmarks of diversity, equality and innovation in the UK's creative industry sector. Um, so for me, what I'm really keen on trying to find out is whether the political parties agree with me that the BBC's decision to close the Asian network and Six Music is fundamentally strategically flawed and a mistake. And I don't want to get into a debate about micromanagement, but to me, it's a strategic mistake. I don't see the logic of it. Um, And I'd want to see the logic of it in terms of um, a real solid strategic analysis. But I think what I'd be asking the political parties to do is to... um, 
one, see if they agree with my analysis, and secondly, is to kind of pledge to resist these proposed cuts, to stand up for the BBC against its commercial and political enemies, and okay, very proactively got champion, you. I'll finish it, and very proactively champion equality, diversity, and community cohesion in public service broadcasting. That's and, and the key for Anybody me. present who's willing to uh, defy their Treasury spokesman and make a pledge? Quick yes and no's? Well, we said that, Ed Miliband here, we said we'll keep the BBC uh, licence fee for the current uh, period, and we, we've got a settlement. We don't think it should be disrupted, as Jeremy Hunt proposes. I can't say that that I would tell the BBC to no, keep a particular okay. station open, but I think diversity no in terms of public services is important in terms of what the BBC does and diversity of audiences, and that is a very important principle. Yes, Jeremy. Let me say to you, this to you, Dilnar. I think that providing high-quality niche services that the market doesn't provide is core to what the BBC should and would do under a Conservative government. Danny Alexander? Well, we need to make sure the BBC remains strong, uh, free from interference and securely funded, uh, not, not just for the news it produces, but also uh, you know, all the other high-quality programming it, it produces, and that's the attitude okay. that we would have as a government. Thank you. Hannah, tweeters excited? They're always yeah. excited. Yeah, um, I think we've got a lot of people who feel very strongly that, that committing making concrete commitments to defending the BBC, not just from this latest round of proposed cuts, but long into the future is an absolutely essential part of having effective public service broadcasting uh, here in the UK. So we're getting lots of comments from our members making those kinds okay, of things. Thank you. No, right. Complete change of uh, uh, agenda here. Uh, the Trident Nuclear uh, Deterrent uh, Renewal. Uh, we've got uh, Sarah on the line from Glasgow. Fire away, Sarah. Good afternoon. Um, in order to make my decision on where to cast my vote, I need to be really sure where the parties stand on Trident and on the upgrade of, of Trident, which would cost, I gather, around 100 billion, not 100 million, 100 billion pounds. And in my opinion, this vast amount of money would be much, much, much better spent on the um, amelioration and adaptation of climate change, adaptation to and amelioration of climate okay, change. Climate change poses an extreme threat to life and a fairly immediate one, whereas we cannot and should not ever use Trident. I, I know where the SNP stand on this and the Greens, of course, but I wish to know where the other main parties stand on uh, the yes. elections. Okay, in we've got you there. Different. Thank you very much. We'll start in Scotland. Uh, north of you is Danny Alexander. Danny Alexander. Well, the Liberal Democrats would not go ahead with the replacement of uh, Trident on a like-for-like -like basis, which is what the government has decided to uh, go ahead with, with the support of the uh, Conservative Party. We think that uh, we, uh, there's growing support in the military and elsewhere uh, for parties for not spending £100 billion. Pounds, is it which that is, much? Which, well, it's, it's about £20 billion pounds to build the submarines, and the remainder is the lifetime cost of, of, of running them over a 25-year period. For uh, a nuclear weapon system which, which was designed for the Cold War era at the time at which we needed to uh, have submarines at sea all the time with the capacity to flatten Moscow. I just don't think that's uh, that's what we need uh, anymore. Would you have um, a nuclear deterrent? I can't remember. Well, we would have a, we would have a nuclear deterrent. Um, we've, uh, Ming Campbell, in fact, published a paper setting out a whole range of alternatives which would be uh, which would meet our needs, which would be cheaper. There's a range of options from the from the Japanese solution of uh, maintaining the capacity to, uh, in terms of research, to build nuclear weapons should we need them, mm. to um, uh, arming with nuclear weapons our current uh, astute class. Submarines; uh, those are issues that would be looked at you in mean a defence review. Sea launch cruise missiles. 
missiles, which could only flatten half of Moscow if, it, uh, if they uh, could get that far. But it would avoid spending £100 billion over the lifetime on this unnecessary project, which could, could be used elsewhere, could okay. be used to reduce the black hole in, in the public finances. I think it's the sort of choice the country is going to have to make over the next uh, uh, few years, no. and uh, only the Liberal Democrats are prepared to make it. Now, Ed Miliband, uh, our caller, Sarah, explicitly linked climate change, uh, which has uh, a nuclear dimension all of its own, with uh, this uh, military issue. Um, how do you respond to that? Uh, of course, I understand the importance that uh, Sarah attaches to, to climate change. D- let me be clear about this. I mean, we are multilateral disarmers. We've reduced our warheads by about 50% since 1997. We've said we would go ahead with the upgrade to Trident, which costs about 15 to 20 billion over a period of, of 20 or 30 uh, years, not the figure that Danny uh, has used. Of course, Danny also wants uh, a new nuclear weapon, but he won't tell you how much it costs. Um, uh, and over what period it's going to be commissioned. Uh, But we do think that disarmament is very, very important. And the uh, recent uh, talks between the US and Russia are very encouraging. And we, as actually, we were recognised, Britain, in 1970 in the Non-Proliferation Treaty as one of the nuclear powers. Our responsibility and our job is to help ensure that that disarmament happens as one of the nuclear powers. So I actually think that multilateral disarmament is starting to have an effect. uh, And I I think we need to to make sure and and give that a go and try and make sure that that happens and to play our part in doing that. Jeremy Hunt, nuclear weapons issues decided elections when I was a lad. Uh, It all seems now a bit sort of passe. The Cold War, as Danny Alexander said, has gone. Uh, The world is much more uh, diffuse and much more complicated. Is this, for many voters, a bit of an old hat issue which doesn't resonate like it did? Well, it's interesting. It's funny you say that. I remember the first general election campaign I ever f- campaigned in, um, which was the 1987 campaign when you had Neil Kinnock, unilateral nuclear disarmament. How old were you? Um, I was just uh, in my first year at university or oh. second year at university then. So uh, it, it was a long time ago. But um, but I think it is an important issue. And it's really interesting, the Sarah's link between climate change and um, the nuclear deterrent, because I think in both cases, what we're dealing with is uncertainty. And a small point on what Danny's saying, I mean, when he says he wouldn't have a like-for-like replacement for Trident, um, what, you know, the experts say is if you're going to have a credible nuclear deterrent, it has to be submarine-based. And basically, we're talking about something like Trident. I haven't heard any expert who says that uh, those kind of options that he was talking about are actually credible. And as Ed says, uh, the Lib Dems haven't costed them either. But I just say this. Um, we are in a very uncertain world. We've got uh, rogue states like Syria, Iran, North Korea developing nuclear capabilities. Your party uh, leader tacked China onto that list the other day. No, not on not on that particular point. But um, the point is, can we be sure about what's happening in the future? And I think we do have to be very realistic about this and say that we don't know what's going to happen around the corner. And I think it's very unwise for the Lib Dems before a strategic defence review, which they and we both support, to rule out okay. having an independent, <coughs> credible, independent submarine-based nuclear okay, power. I think Thank it's you even for that, Sarah. If I can head you off there. Uh, Did that sound like a big party uh, stitch up there at the expense of poor Danny Alexander, the Greens and the SNP? I'm um, confused. Uh, The last uh, speaker, the Conservative, seemed to think that we are uncertain about about the, um, the threat of climate change. We may be uncertain as to the extent of it, but we certainly aren't uncertain that it's that it's happening and that we need to deal with it and we need to find the money to do to to deal with it and uh, i I I agree with you sarah no i'm completely agree with that 
Okay. Uh, uh, the tweeters uh, are registering on that, Hannah? Yeah, I think people mostly seem to feel that there's it's, it's a worrying thing to be spending this much money on a nuclear deterrent at a time when there are so many other pressing, yes, exactly uh, pressing things that we should be spending money on. We've also uh, started to see people express an interest in hearing about uh, the next question that we've got on, on lobbying and All how right, we regulate lobbying. All right, then they can be, wait patiently no longer. Jane Parsons in Boston, over to you. Oh, hello. Yes, I would like to know if any of the parties are planning to do anything about lobbying transparency. Uh, admirably succinct. Uh, Jeremy Hunt. Absolutely. Um, David Cameron, I think, said last year when the expenses scandal had just broken, he thought that, that Lobbygate would be the next huge scandal to rock British politics. And we have said there needs to be a statutory register of interest so that everyone knows precisely uh, what lobbying companies are doing and who they're lobbying on behalf. And I think the other thing we need is total transparency so that people know who their MPs have been seeing. And um, you know, I, I don't actually think that there should be no contact between lobbying companies and members of parliament because um, part of the thing that MPs need to do and ministers need to do is to talk to people who are affected by different issues. But the way that we can avoid corruption is to make sure everyone knows exactly what's going on. And the other thing, uh, just thinking about the, the particular scandal of the, the former Labour ministers who were hawking themselves around, is that I think we should lengthen the period uh, which former ministers have to wait before they can take a, up a job lobbying for outside interests. I mean, since you've mentioned the Labour ministers caught by the Sunday Times and dispatches, you can't help... I think I read it was also in the Sunday Times that quite a lot of people who are coming into Parliament on your side are people who have who work in this kind of world. Is that so? Look, I wouldn't say this is a problem that is unique to one or the other parties. It's actually something that uh, we need to tackle across the board. Um, but I think the important thing on that, and that's a very good example of what you've just given, that is why transparency okay, is transparency incredibly important. Is we answer. need to know um, particularly if anyone is being paid, um, because that is the thing that I think worries most people the greatest, I is the thought of people okay. being paid to um, exercise their democratic now, rights. Ed, Ed Miliband, you must get lobbied by energy companies and heaven who else, but you also get lobbied by Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. Do, should we regard them as lobbyists who, or whose affairs should be more transparently logged as well? Well, I, I'm happy to be open about who I meet and who lobbies me. And I think that, that transparency is very important. So we also think there should be a, a, a statutory uh, register uh, of lobbyists. We also think that we should ban MPs from, from working for generic lobbying uh, companies and that uh, MPs wanting to do second jobs should have to have independent verification that it's not going to be a conflict of interest. We think that that is important uh, because I think people want to be assured that an MP's primary responsibility is to be working uh, for them. But but I think that, that ending self-regulation, if you like, of, of, of lobbying and, and publishing a formal register, I think, is the right thing to do. Okay. Uh, Danny Alexander. Well, I think people are rightly angry about the idea that MPs are uh, peddling influence within Parliament uh, for money, when in fact that's the job that's uh, making representations on behalf of their constituents is what MPs should be doing. I think the, the register idea that Jeremy mentioned is a, is a good one, but we would go much further than that. We'd change the ministerial code so that ministers and officials are forbidden from meeting MPs on issues where that MP is being paid to lobby. 
We'd require companies to declare how much they spend on lobbying in their annual reports so we could see what businesses are, businesses are doing. And we would also, to take the point that, that, that you made, Michael, about candidates, uh, we'd introduce a statutory register of interests for parliamentary candidates, which would be similar to the current register of members' interests, so that people could see before the election who, which special interests or which jobs or which links people had before they got into Parliament, not wait to see it afterwards. OK, that's clear answers from everyone. Jane Parsons, are you um, impressed by that? Yes, particularly the last one, because the reason I was asking the question was because I think people have the right to know who is influencing policy. Yep, transparency seems to be the key here. Uh, We're doing quite well on the questions. I'm going to move quickly to bank regulation. Great issue after the banking crisis of the last two years. Difficult one to solve. Uh, uh, Agnes uh, Magrati, if I've mispronounced that, I apologise. Glasgow, uh, your question. I'd like to know how you're going to regulate the banks. We're all going to have to tighten our belts, but the bankers seem to be getting away with just filling their pockets. So I'd like to know how you're going to regulate the banks in order that they will release money for businesses, small businesses and medium-sized businesses. Okay, Ed Miliband. There are two issues here, essentially. I think one is how do we make sure that banks properly fund uh, businesses, small businesses and others? And we have come to lending agreements with the banks for the coming year about the amounts of money uh, running, obviously, into the tens of billions that we think uh, that, that we've agreed with them that they will uh, put aside for, for lending to businesses. That's obviously the, the banks in which we have a public stake. Secondly, though, the very important question about how we prevent a repeat of what we've seen in the past. I think there's two answers to this. First of all, the FSA, the, the Financial Services Authority, needs to regulate the banks for what they call systemic risk. Are they taking actions which could undermine the whole uh, banking system as it didn't as they did in the past? And the second thing is that banks are going to have to do what, what we what is sort of rather ugly phrase living wills. So putting money aside to ensure that should they fall into financial trouble, uh, they will have the means to fall back on. Uh, to make sure uh, that they that we don't have they don't have to come back to the taxpayer. Serious charges levelled against Goldman Sachs over the weekend. Prime Minister has spoken today of moral bankruptcy. Um, why didn't he adopt that tone sooner? I think he did at the time of the uh, at the time when all this uh, when all of this became apparent as to what had been going on and the ways in which people had been making huge amounts of money and essentially destroying wealth in this country. I think he was very very clear uh, about uh, his condemnation of what had happened. Jeremy Hunt. Well, I think the regulation of the banks is probably something that um, historians will look back on this period and say was Gordon Brown's biggest failure because it was one of the first things he did as Chancellor. He came up and he ripped up the way the banks were regulated. At the same time, he did something good, which was make the Bank of England independent. But your lot was in favour of even more deregulation up until the the crash. It's not a a question about the level of deregulation. It's actually a question of the structures, because what was separated was the, the Financial Services Authority from the Bank of England. And that had a very serious impact, because it meant that the body that was regulating how the banks behaved didn't have the financial muscle of all those reserves that the Bank of England has to actually make sure that people behaved in a responsible but way. The US but the US Federal Reserve made the same mistake. Yes, but if you actually look at what happened in Britain, our recession was worse than any of the other big countries. We went into it first, we came out of it last. We suffered a lot more than many other countries as a result of those regulatory failures. But let me say this, I think the central 
point that Agnes was talking about is, is something that I know my constituents when I met them in surgeries feel very strongly, which is that we as taxpayers have stepped in to try and sort out the banking system because we had to because we knew that if that system failed, it would bring everyone else down like a pack of cards. And we therefore totally object when they use that support to go on paying themselves obscene bonuses using our taxpayer-funded support. And we think that is quite wrong, and that's why both David Cameron and George Osborne have taken a very strong line against bankers' bonuses. Danny Alexander, Vince Cable and Nick Clegg had a five-point plan to uh, cap these bonuses. even said, uh, if you're not making a profit, you can't pay a bonus. Seems fairly sensible. Uh, I think it is very sensible in terms of uh, uh, dealing with bonuses, capping bonuses, ensuring that those bonuses that are paid are paid over the uh, long term so it doesn't encourage short-term risk-taking, saying that if you're not making a profit, you shouldn't be able to pay a bonus. Those are all sensible suggestions on bonuses. But as I understood Agnes's question, she was actually asking about regulation and what would we do about the way banking is organised to stop these mistakes happening again. What we would do is break up the banks. We'd establish a clear separation between low-risk banking, retail banking, banking that supports businesses, uh, and the high-risk investment banking, uh, so that taxpayers are never again expected to underwrite that kind of high-risk casino banking, which has brought our economy to its knees. Uh, To get the banks lending responsibly again, we also believe that the taxpayer representatives, those people who sit on the boards of the banks that that we own, Royal Bank of Scotland and and, and, uh, and, and Lloyds Banking Group, uh, make sure that uh, uh, that they insist that the banks lend to viable businesses on fair terms again. As I go around my own constituency uh, 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 and elsewhere and meet local businesses, what they're telling me is that it's getting harder and harder to get a loan from the bank or have, a, have a, a, an overdraft facility replaced. And when they do, uh, the terms that are put, put to them in terms of the interest that they have to pay in terms of arrangement fees and so on are absolutely eye-watering. We should be using our position as the shareholders in these banks to ensure that businesses can get money on fair terms. That's the the blood that the economy needs to be pumping around, and at the moment it's being stifled. So all this extra credit the government's pumping into the economy is really being used to shore up uh, 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 the Financial Times uh, uh, share index and uh, uh, recapitalise and uh, restore the profits of the banks. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think that's certainly something of what's happening. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Agnes, uh, Scottish banks suffered their share of uh, uh, misfortune in this uh, disaster. Uh, How did that strike you? I like the last suggestions. I certainly feel that uh, I I don't trust the banks to regulate themselves. No. And I think they need to have some kind of, some measure of, of, um, whether it's the FSA or whatever the government come out with, they need to have some measure of jurisdiction that they must adhere to. Um, at the end of the day, um, if somebody owes the bank money, the bank pursue them. Yep. Okay, thank you. Well, MPs aren't regulating themselves uh, 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 anymore either, so that's a lesson from it. There's only the media left self-regulating. Who said that? Uh, Hannah, are the tweeters saying anything? Yeah, um, we've heard from one of our members, Jamie, saying that um, he can't understand why it is that both Labour and Conservatives are are very keen to get people's votes at the moment, but they're just not willing to tackle the anger that voters feel about the, the way that the banks have behaved and also wanting to hear about how how parties are planning to tackle poverty okay though that's our last question we're getting close to the end let's take it with an easy one uh how do we close the gap between rich and poor uh which has been uh, expanding despite a lot of money pumped in by uh, this government lorna in worcester oh hello yes um i'd like uh, all the um people who've 
contributed to the manifestos to answer this if there's time. Um, yes, how will you um, reduce the widening gap between the highly paid and the lowly paid? And I'd just like to say, does it really matter to you very much? Jeremy Hunt, I've had David Cameron say the gap's getting bigger and I've wanted to shout from the back of the room, it isn't the poor are getting poorer, the gap is widening because the rich are getting a lot richer. Isn't that correct? Well, I think it depends which statistics you look at. The one that troubled me the most was to see that there are 250,000 families now with children in extreme poverty, more than there were in 1997. So um, I think there have been some really bad failures. And and I think uh, this is a very important issue. And one thing I, I heard a couple of weeks ago, which really shocked me, was that the difference in life expectancy between the richest borough in London and the poorest borough in London has grown to 17 years. So if you're born in Kensington and Chelsea, you're likely to live for 17 years longer than if you live in Tower Hamlets. And I think what we've had from the government is the right intentions, but not policies that have really tackled this. And I think the main problem is that their levers to try and uh, reduce inequality have been... uh, essentially financial ones through the tax credit system where they've shifted um, a lot of people from just below the poverty line to just above the poverty line but they haven't dealt with the, the really critical issue which is providing people a ladder through which they can move up in life and we've got eight million adults of working age out of work I mean it's a massive number of people um, 98 and a half percent of the jobs that have been created since 1997 have actually gone to immigrants. I think immigration can be a very positive thing, but it is a real shame when all the jobs are being taken by people who are coming to the country for the first time and we're not training uh, people who are already here to, with the skills necessary okay, to take up Ed those Miliband, jobs. Okay, Ed Miliband, I can hear you muttering down the line from Gateshead. No, I, I, I think Jeremy Hunt's a nice bloke, but I just think his answer is just extraordinary. I mean, t- take the issue of inequality. Yes, it is hard to narrow the gap between rich and poor, but everything that Jeremy Hunt is proposing and everything the Conservatives are proposing would take us in the wrong direction. So they want to cut tax credits, takes us in the wrong direction. They, they, they won't guarantee... We don't, Ed. They won't well, guarantee... Yes, yes, you do. Oh, for people earning over £50,000, would that take us in the wrong direction? They, they, they won't guarantee sure start. That takes us in the wrong uh, direction. Hang on, that's uh, wrong as well. Let me just take you up on this, Ed. We, haven't, we support sure start. What we've Have actually gar- said is we want to increase the number of health visitors, the health visitor programme okay, within short start. So we actually question, want Jeremy. to... Answer me this question. Have you guaranteed to protect sure start funding? We have guaranteed to protect Shorestart and expand have the health visitor. Have you guaranteed to protect, to protect the funding that makes Shorestart happen, we, Jeremy? We are going to no, expand. The no, no, the that's not true at all. You're just you're playing with numbers here. What we've I'm actually said. You, yeah, no, 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 I'm let, not playing okay, with numbers. Okay, no, no. If you look at the money that we have said we'll put into one of the most important things that Shorestart does, we've said we will expand the health visitor so, so, programme. No, no, so all you're doing it. Hang on, hang on. Let me just Let me just finish with this, Ed, because it's very, very important. You have taken what we have said about taking the health visitor program from Shorespart and expanding it. You have twisted that to say we're going to cut no. You're Shorestart saying you're using the, the money in a different thing. way. Is that what That's you're exactly saying? That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, Danny Alexander, come in here and restore order, calm and uh, perspective. Well, let me just try and answer the question, uh, Michael, if that's okay. Um, the, the gap between rich and poor has got wider, not just over the last few years, but over the last 20 or, or 30 years under the last Conservative government too. And I think it, it, it is one of the most important things that the next government has to tackle. That's why 
why uh, we're putting forward what I think is the most radical and progressive policy that any party is putting forward at this election to ensure that no one would pay any income tax at all until they earned more than £10,000. That would put money back into pockets on people on low incomes on, on, and on middle incomes and too. And high incomes too. It helps uh, you up to £100,000, well, doesn't it, it? It, it? it would, but we take money off people because it's a sev- the cost of lifting the threshold to £10,000 uh, would be about £17 billion. To do that, we'd have to ask people at the top to pay uh, their fair share. We'd have to tax capital gains, which is the way many people take their bonuses, for example, tax that at the same as income. We'd ensure that everyone got tax relief at the same rate, not not giving the lion's share to, to higher rate taxpayers. We'd deal with uh, tax avoidance. We'd have green taxes on uh, additional green taxes on air travel. I think those are the way to make the tax system fairer. But I also think that it isn't just about money, it's also about opportunities. It's about people having better chances in life from the very start. And that's why uh, the one area that we've said we'd switch more money into, even in these tight economic circumstances as part of our plans, is to invest in education. Uh, and a, a new funding f- that should give schools additional money for each of the children from deprived backgrounds, from disadvantaged backgrounds that they teach, to try and ensure that funding for those pupils is lifted to the level of private schools, so that every single child has the best start in life. Can, can I come the back only in, party yes. to put more money into that particular part of the education system. Uh, Ed the, Miliband and then Jeremy Hunt on this question of the, 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 the raising need, life chances of the poor, that's important. The, the way we need to tackle inequality, and it, and it does matter, the gap between rich and poor does matter, is we have to carry on doing some of the things we've been doing like Sure Start, because they are very, very important, and frankly, the first kid who went into Shore Start in 1999 will be 18 in 2017, so it will take a long time for its effects to come out, to become clear. We've got to make work pay, which is why we're committed to raising the minimum wage with earnings, for example. Uh, And we need to ensure that when it comes to reducing the deficit, we do so in a way that is fair. That's why we've said that we would have a new 50% tax rate, which we've just introduced, at £150,000 a year. Again, a change opposed by the Conservative Party. That is a big divide in this But they're going to support it now, aren't they? Well, you never know. They did oppose them. it, but they you, are going to support it. Well, exactly. But, that, but, but that's the difference between the priorities of a Labour government and the priorities of a t- Conservative government. Jeremy Hunt. Well, look, I think that the single thing that can make the biggest difference of all to people on low incomes is to get a good job. And I think the thing that um, has been most disappointing is how few jobs have actually been created for the people who need them the most. And I think that what Labour's planning to do, despite the fact that it knows there's a huge amount of waste in the system, it's going to finance that waste by increasing national insurance, which will actually put off employers from offering new jobs. And I think that will mean there are fewer jobs, 58,000 fewer jobs in small to medium-sized enterprises alone, which will have a devastating effect and will lead to more of precisely the worklessness that I think is the root cause of this problem. Okay, I think, uh, that the, I think the, the only plan that's really going to put more money back into the pockets of people on low incomes is ours, which will put £700 a year back into the pockets of people on £10,000, Okay, that no one who earns less than that pays any We'll any hold you that when Vince, when Vince Cable is Chancellor. Anything could happen in this election. Hannah, you've had a spike of interest uh, on the lobbying yeah, uh, we've, exchanges. We've had lots of questions about Jeremy's answer to the lobbying question because most people think that the Conservative Party are only committing themselves to a voluntary code, but we got the impression that from what you said that you're committing them to a compulsory code is that right because that's different from manifesto yes. policy uh, we believe in a statutory code 
Okie dokie. Okay. Well, that's a straight and, and short answer. Uh, before we go, uh, there's just time to mention our next live event, which takes place tomorrow evening at the University of Birmingham in Birmingham. Uh, Politics Weekly podcast will have Nick Cohen of The Observer, John Harris, the peripatetic Guardian correspondent, and Jackie Ashley, the columnist, recorded live. Uh, details of how to get tickets you can find on guardian.co.uk slash politicsweekly. Uh, a podcast of this show uh, that we've just uh, been conducting will be available later today. My thanks to Ed Miliband, uh, Jeremy Hunt, Danny Alexander, authors of their manifestos, and to 38 Degrees and Hannah, and of course to all our callers, tweeters, bloggers, and everybody else. I'm Michael White. The producers were so many of them, Francesca Panetta, Phil Maynard, and Ben Cape. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.